Proverbs 27, 17 says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The same can be said about the church. As iron sharpens iron, so one church sharpens another. I'm so grateful for the theme this year of exponential, together pursuing the great collaboration, because it reminds us that we are called to live out the Great Commission, and we are called to live out the Great Commandment, but we are equally called to live that out together as one church. See, as I look over the church in our country, especially in the Western world, I see that a lot of us are building our churches as castles. We're building them strong and we're building them high. But the feeling that I'm getting of what God is doing in the church right now is helping us take our churches down brick by brick. And by saying that, I mean this, God is not concerned about our individual castles as much as he is concerned about creating a kingdom, a kingdom where there's only one king. One of the things that get in the way of us becoming this church that is one, the big C church, not castles, but a kingdom, is privilege. Privilege is one of those things that when you hear the word, it makes you either feel like you can relate to it or probably that you can't. I spoke to so many different people and some people, for example, my white brothers and sisters will say to me, I understand that I have privilege. But there are other sisters and brothers that I have who are white that say, I don't understand how I could be a person of privilege. And if you're feeling like that today, that perhaps you were told you have privilege, but you cannot really understand how, I want to talk a little bit more deeply with you about my story and share a little bit about what the scripture says about this. See, growing up, my mother told me I was a triple threat. I was outgoing. I could dance and I could act. She would tell me that over and over again until I believed it. And honestly, I felt comfortable in my own skin. And that was important to me because I grew up in a very tough neighborhood. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York in Bed-Stuy. And honestly, I'm still here to this day planting a church. But here's the story of how this triple threat ended up being a triple minority. See, my mother gave me this vision of who I was. But when I stepped out into society and I saw the gun violence and the gang affiliations and people selling drugs on my street, I didn't really understand that I was a person that was a triple threat because society was telling me something different. When I stepped out into the greater world and I started to explore, I realized people did not necessarily see me as a triple threat. Instead, I was a triple minority. I was black, I was a woman and I grew up in a poor neighborhood. See, there's no way in the world that I would have thought I would be a person of privilege. Again, I'm a triple minority. There's no way I thought that I could be a person of privilege. But then I thought a little bit deeper about my life, particularly when I got my master's degree from seminary. I remember feeling so overjoyed and having my family share with me that I was the first person in my family to receive a master's degree. And in that moment, a light bulb went off. I'm a person of privilege. When it comes to my education, if I qualify for a job and someone else in my family qualifies for a job, someone would probably give me an advantage and give me an opportunity that wouldn't be awarded one of my other family members. And that's when I realized that it's so important for people, especially leaders in the church, to do an inventory of their lives to find out if they have privilege or better yet, where they have privilege. Because to be honest, we're in the Western world. I'm talking to you through the computer. I'm talking to you through Exponential, a pathway that has met people across the world and taught them how to be successful at living out the gospel. We have advantages here that other people in the world do not. So oftentimes we ask ourselves, do I have privilege? But the question might be, where do I have privilege? See, Jesus understood something very important, that if he came down to this earth fully as God, not in the human flesh, that he would have privilege over us. So, so here is what Jesus decides to do. And you can find this in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. 
And Paul is writing this to the people in Philippi. And he says this about Jesus. Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See, here we have Jesus, knowing that the fullness of who he is in God could not have happened here on earth and have it been equal with humanity. In order for him to make equal himself and humanity, he had to come in human form. So he didn't use his equality with God, his privilege to his advantage. Rather, it said he made himself nothing. He made himself a servant. So Jesus didn't ask himself, did he have privilege? He knew that if he came down as God, he would have that privilege. But that's not what he wanted. See, Jesus wanted to be on an equal playing field with us, which means he had to leave his equality with God in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that he renounced his deity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he refused to use it at a time where he would submit to the human flesh. See, there's a story that shares this so well, and I'm sure you know it. He probably preached on it a couple of times or heard sermons preached about it. And it's the story of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was there a couple of hours before he was going to be crucified and arrested. And he brought his disciples with him so that he could pray to God. The interesting thing is he brought three of the disciples even closer than the rest so that they can see him in this very vulnerable moment. So here Jesus is. I imagine him weak and frail And he's telling his friends, his brothers, his disciples to stay up and keep watch with him and pray. And as he's praying to God, the father to take this cup, but not his will, but the father's will to be done. He goes back to the disciples and where does he find them? Sleeping. So he wakes them up and he reminds them that temptation would find them. So he tells them the truth that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. What an example of him denouncing his privilege, him saying he is not going to use the equality with God in this moment. Instead, he's going to submit to the human flesh. He goes and prays. He goes back to the disciples again and he finds them asleep a second time. But this time he leaves them and he goes to pray one more time, the same prayer. And then he tells them to awake because his betrayers are coming. But we see this picture here of Jesus being a servant for us, submitting to human flesh and ultimately suffering. But on the other side, we see the disciples doing something very interesting. They're sleeping. See, this is an example of what a person does of privilege while others are suffering. They're sleeping. See, the disciples did not have to endure the cross. They didn't have to be executed publicly while their mother watched. Very differently, they would go back and and think about where Jesus was and, and live a totally different life without him. But they did not have to suffer the cross the way that Jesus did. They were people of privilege. See, now don't get me wrong. When you look at the disciples, they were typically a people that were considered privileged in their community. Quite the opposite. They were fishermen and tax collectors. But in this moment, they didn't realize their own privilege because they weren't doing an inventory of their own lives. They weren't looking for suffering and seeing how they can listen to a person's story and help them walk in their shoes. Instead, they were sleeping. See, I want to tell you something. You may have more privilege than you know about. There's no way I thought that I could be in a position of privilege as being a triple minority. And I'm sure the disciples did not think that they had privilege because of where they came from. But truth be told is this. There may be some areas in your life where you have privilege. So today I want you to do an inventory of your life. Are there any advantages that you have that causes others not to get opportunities And because of that, they become marginalized. Sit with that question for a little bit and think about Jesus. Because Jesus did not use his equality with God 
as something to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing and he became a servant. What do you have to make yourself in order to be equal to the people around you that are suffering and marginalized? Let God speak to you and then respond. Well, hey, welcome to the Exponential Divided No More conversation series. Uh, my name is Jason Dukes. I'm joined today by Sentez Beatty. And did I say the name correctly, Sentez? Because forgive me, I didn't even ask you how to say the last name, and that's my bad. Are you good? Santis. Santis Beatty, yep. Santis Beatty. You've been, you've been gracious with me uh, in this. And so... Thankful to be here with you, and we hope that you enjoyed uh, the video that you uh, just got to watch, and, and, and we're looking forward to just dialoguing with you about it. And so what we thought we'd do is we would take a few minutes. Um, there were some prepared questions that we had thought through that we felt like would be helpful, just almost like a review, basically, of, of kind of processing some of what that video was about from the resource kit, uh, the Divided No More resource kit. And so I'm going to dialogue and throw these questions out to Santis, and then we'll turn it uh, and allow those of you that are in the classroom to dialogue and ask some questions as well. And then we can learn from each other because that's that's what's exciting about this format is a chance to have a posture of learning as as students, as people that are growing in this together. And so, um, so let's dive in. So Demetra talks about in the video, uh, Santis, about how we build our churches as castles. And I mean, how, how maybe unpack that just to make sure it's clear from the way that you perceived it and, and talk about how understanding privilege helps us refocus on, on building God's kingdom instead of the, the individual and, and uh, castles and fiefdoms that we often can give our energy to. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jason. And it's, it's great to be with you, by the way. Um, thanks for having me. I, um, I think what I love about what she said is, is this whole understanding partially that like privilege, if we unpack it, is inherently not bad. Right. Like privilege is not bad. It's, it's actually neutral. Um, the question is not like if it's bad or good. The question is really like, what do we do with it? Right. And so it's not a matter of like, um, you know, if I have privilege, it's a matter of where I have privilege because all of us have it at some level. But I think there's also this other piece. Right. Like privilege is this phenomenon where there advantages and then there's this immunity right that's granted to someone or a group of people um and it, it goes beyond uh, a common advantage for all people and and i think when she gets into this whole idea of the kingdom and our castle um i think we have to go back to that whole concept of advantages and immunity right like immunity means that you know we're not directly uh, impacted by some things right that that other people are impacted by or like most of us, not all of us, um, you know, w want to better understand what's happening with COVID-19, right? Like we want a vaccine and there's, there's a reason why it's called an immunization, right? That it means we will either not get it or that if we get it, it won't have the same negative impact that it has on someone who doesn't have the, the, the vaccine. And so what she's getting at here about this castle piece, which is really cool, I think she's saying that too often privilege is used to advance our own agenda, right? It's too, it's too yeah. often used to prop ourselves up or maybe protect us from other people or other things. And from a church standpoint, it, it can show up in subtle ways, right? It can show up in things like uh, how we, um, how we, uh, what we name things and, and things like compassion and missions uh, instead of it yeah. being discipleship, right? We, we say things like, you know, outreach to our community instead of youth group, right? They become like these, these microaggressions instead of micro uh, affirmations. And then I think lastly, I would say this, like one of the powerful realities uh, of privilege is that I can choose, I can choose to escape from the conversation, right? Or I can choose to escape from the work when it comes to how yeah. others experience the issue. Um, and I can have control over it too if, if I get involved in the combo. And, and we have to really resist the temptation to do both. 
Mm, that's good. That's good. Yeah, because I think I, I think like you said, it's it's easy once you've been inculcated into what has become very familiar to you, the the culture that that surrounds you. And it really is easy to almost get blinders on, right? Like, like, why, why is it so difficult? Why do you think, well, in your opinion, why is it so difficult to even recognize when we act or think or strategize or, or especially in church culture, you know, when we, when we communicate and, 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 and live in such a way that we just get blind to the privilege that we are living in. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons is kind of like being a fish in water, right? Like it's, it's really hard, if not impossible, to understand the importance of the water you're swimming in until you're pulled out of it, right? Um, the same is true about air, right? Like it's, 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 you can't see it and you don't know you're breathing it every day, all day, until something about the air quality changes. And now all of a sudden, yeah. what I couldn't see before that I had taken for granted, uh, now I have to have a different level of understanding about. And I think privilege is the same way. Um, I, I used the, the illustration a friend of mine talks about often with water privilege, like, like the, the fact that I could have this uh, water bottle in my hand um, and, and be able to go, go and turn on my faucet and, and clean water come out, that the water in my toilet is actually cleaner than most people drink all over the world. Uh, having this water privilege doesn't make me a bad person. The question is like, what do I do with it, right? And so I think it becomes elusive, right? And, um, and, then, and then there's sometimes kind of this pressure to avoid privilege, to avoid the conversation, because like if we face it, that means we might not be able to, uh, believe the myth or the lie. <laughs> uh, we might have to open our eyes to something. Um, and then once we open our eyes to something, we may have a choice that we have to make. Uh, are we going to be a part of the solution or are we going to be a part of the problem? And so I think that's uh, a real, real difficulty. And, and I love um, Peggy McIntosh, who wrote an um, a article years ago uh, on white privilege, uh, unpacking the invisible knapsack. It's really good, and it, and it kind of she takes like her understanding of of dealing with sexism as a woman, and she compares what she has seen with the privilege of men. She compares that to white privilege, and she begins to unpack this: the things that I experience that I don't even know that I carry, you know, that advantage or that immunity, and and I had that experience one time before, right? I think uh, Demetria did a great job talking about her privilege. Like I had a moment where I was taking a student through Washington, D.C., and he was in a wheelchair. And, um, and, I, and he, had, he couldn't bring his uh, electronic one, and so we had to push him in a manual one. And, and I found myself, for the very first time, as an able-bodied person navigating accessibility issues, things that I mm. didn't think about and yeah. I had to now think about with him because this is his life. And I think the same is true with us is, is we have to be willing sometimes – to, to learn from people, to, to listen, um, to put ourselves in positions like that intentionally so that we can see a, a, a view of the world that we normally wouldn't. Um, and, and we have so much privilege. Like as a male, I have privilege in ministry and work and, and pay. I don't have to think about being harassed or assaulted sexually, right? Like uh, I, I feel that there's a level of safety about where I live in my home. That's a privilege, like the fact that I have food. So I think all of us have some form of, of privilege, but, um, but being able to be in touch with that is not always a guarantee. And so we may have to do some work to get in touch with some of that privilege. Yeah, you know, in the, in the polarized culture that we exist in right now, especially in America, and I know not, not everyone potentially listening and watching lives in America, but, but in the polarized culture of America right now, it, it's, almost like it's, it's almost like for some people it's uncomfortable to even talk about the subject of privilege, right? And, and, and so then you pull that into the subculture of church, and the nature, especially if you get into the evangelical realm, because we know um, the the nature or the the diver in the diversity of the evangelical realm, there's serious polarization there uh, in thought on this idea of privilege. 
And so really, we've got to figure out how to lean back into what Jesus might have even given us as insights on this, right? Like what, what, how, speak to that. I mean, what, what is Jesus, how does he help us in his own teachings to maybe even set the blinders down and then at least get, get uh, contrite? And even if you don't feel like you need to be contrite, which that could be a whole other conversation, Right. But at least to get honest about the fact that privilege may be affecting me and then certainly affecting others who don't have it in ways that I've never understood. What, what does Jesus really say that might help us with that? Yeah, I think I think that passage in Philippians 2 is such a powerful one. Right. We call it the kenosis passage or the. Yeah self-emptying passage. And, you know, in, in that passage, he talks about not having selfish ambition or vain conceit, right? But but this self-emptying. And so, you know, we're talking about privilege, but what are the other things that Jesus is emptying himself of, right? He, he's willing to empty himself of power. He's willing to empty himself of his position, right? He's, he's willing to empty himself of his preferences. And like, and we got to remember, like Jesus had humble beginnings, right? When you, when you really think about the life of Jesus, he came as a part of an oppressed people group. He's the representative of a majority. uh, He's not a representative of a majority culture, but a minority culture. Uh, He came from a poor family and technically at first um, was considered to be a part of an unwed teenage mother's household. He's a a refugee, right? On the run from one because of the threat of death. Like there are all these things. And, and he is willing to, uh, what I love about this passage, he empties himself of things when they won't help, hmm. but he picks them up when they will. Hmm. And I think that is really one of the powerful principles and, that, that I'm learning about this in Philippians 2 is how can I sit down my privilege, my power, my position, my preferences when they will get in the way of what God wants to do? But then how do I pick them up? How do I leverage them? How do I use them for the kingdom uh, when it can potentially help? And we have to be willing to do both. Like we can't just say, I don't want privilege. Give, give my privilege to somebody else, right? No, the question is, okay, when I recognize that I have it, is what I'm doing getting in the way of a kingdom, uh, the kingdom advancing? Or is my privilege actually there to help advance it? And that's, I think, learning from Jesus that way is, is a really big piece of it. That's so good. That's so good. Cause it's, it's really about when is it helping? When is it hurting? Right. And, and, and when is it standing in the way, like you said, and when can it be leveraged? I mean, if we look historically at that idea, I, I mean, to correct me if I'm wrong, but in what I've studied and read about MLK's life, for example, he's quoted, but all there's other, I mean, Frederick Douglass is in one of his famous speeches. I mean, we could name uh, multiple leaders who are, are, are brown skin, black skin from that culture and community who've said, we know in this culture that the white skin person has to be more than a silent ally, right? Like they've got to, they've got to learn how to leverage the nature of in being in that majority culture and what that means to create more of a unified and reconciling and welcoming culture for everyone, like to truly take the ideals that we've set up and say, well, let's try to make those reality instead of just rhetoric. And, and so, so that's, that's significant. I think you're right. I mean, like, like when does it get in the way? When can we leverage it? And, and how does that even work? So, so along those lines, I mean, what are some practical ways that, that people could possibly lay down their privilege and, and maybe what are some ways that they can leverage it? Yeah. I think, you know, one thing is, is kind of going back to what you just said about the, just reminding ourselves that this is not just individual advance uh, advantages um, or, or power. Like it's also how systems and institutions, you know, give immunity or a pass when others don't get the same thing. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's also acknowledging when others are invisible to some people, they're not being seen and, and yeah. other people get the credit, right? Privilege is when I get the credit for not necessarily doing the work. But here's some, here's some practical things. Like one is we can be willing to be vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like get on, getting close enough in proximity with presence to feel the, the pain and, and to be able to share our own pain. Um, but having the willingness to listen first, um, 
Secondly, I'd say like be willing to learn from others, which we alluded to earlier, like allow ourselves to be a student uh, and not always the teacher. <laughs> um, and instead of seeing others as less privileged, um, begin seeing them as people that might actually be denied of some privileges or simply overlooked, right? And that part of our responsibility might actually be um, to work to help give those who are overlooked or those who have been denied access uh, to help them get access to the same privileges that we may have and, and or to help people who don't see them to be able to see them for the first time because often they are invisible um, and, and it's because people don't see that they have anything of value or anything to offer. They, they, they often feel like they're, they're consumers and they don't have anything to, to provide. Um, and then of course, you know, this is when we say all the time, right? Like don't try to be the savior, <laughs> right? Like there's only one of those. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right, that's right. But we can all help, right? Um, and help others around us to see, you know, what's happening in people's lives. And I think, you know, some of those steps will help us to kind of deal with some of the inequities and, and to remove some of those barriers um, mm -hmm. because there are many. Um, some of them are very clear and obvious uh, and then others are more systemic and a lot harder to see. But if we if we engage in some of those things I just mentioned, I think they come to light. No, that's good. That's good. And I'll, I'll throw one last question out there that we didn't prep, but and 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 I'll before I throw it out there, I'll say if if you're in the classroom, an element of this, and you're watching um, uh, with us, you're a participant in this with us. We value you being there, and so thank you for that. Um, if you have a question you want to throw out to Santis, if you have a question that that's that that the video kind of brought up or brought to light or or even something that you're like, man, I'm struggling with this because I don't see how it fits into our context or whatever. Um, you know, please throw that out. You can put that up into the the chat room, into the tool that's there for this and and then we'll try to, to get to that. And so while, while some of you are doing that, if you have a question that you want to throw out that we could all learn together in, I'll throw this, uh, this question out to you, Santis. Um, so I know in some cultures in the South, for instance, of, of America, in the Southern part of America, and this would be true in some European contexts, this would be true even in some South American context specifically, and certainly Australia. But, but if you're in an area that doesn't have much diversity, where, where, where the majority group that typically has the privilege and may even have blinders to it, where they really don't ever have to run into it, right? And, but you, you're waking up to the fact that there's more and more diversity around you that you didn't see. Um, what, what's, a good, what's a good or in a healthy, simple step that someone might can take to begin engaging there in a way that doesn't make it feel like this is just a nice project that I'm doing to make myself feel better. Right. Because that's not, that's, that can be sniffed out. I mean, so what's, what's a more authentic and meaningful, maybe even vulnerable way that someone might begin to engage when they begin to awaken to the diversity around. Them? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, um, Sometimes, you know, it's, you know, doing things like a book study, right, with a group of people who have a similar passion or want to want to grow a great, a great book is Wide Awake um, by Daniel Hill on this issue. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. he, he gets into some of the white privilege and, and some of that type of thing, but he does so as someone who, you know, was a pastor, a planter, um, and trying to multiply his church and ran into some uh, tough issues in, in what was a very diverse area, but people who were coming to his church were all white. And he began to ask the question, why is that, right? A hard yeah. question. So I think is willing to, to ask yourself some really, really hard questions um, and maybe book studies and uh, those kinds of things can be one of those steps. Uh, one of the things I always say when someone asks that kind of question is one of the most loving uh, and generous things a white person or a group of, of white leaders can do is to try to do some of this work without us. And when I say without us, I mean without people of color in the room. Because I think there's, there's often this default to uh, in, in inquire to ask 
us to explain things. Um, and, and there are people who are very much ready to do that. And as a matter of fact, see it as a part of their call to help the body and to help their brothers and sisters walk through this. But one of the most loving things that a white person, a white community can do is to try to do some of this work without us. Um, Because whenever we go into these kinds of conversations, we usually have to relive and rehash trauma um, to be able to explain some of what it means personally and and how we walk through it. So that's, that's it's important to note that it's not always the case that we want you to do it by yourself <laughs> or without yeah. us, but like it's loving to know that sometimes that's helpful. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, I've asked folks to, you know, whether it's book studies or, you know, I just had a, a region that's a part of our denomination to do kind of a film, looking at several films and asking the question, because what, what I've learned is that even though you may not be in a geographically diverse area, uh, or a multi-ethnic area, you still can have a multi-ethnic paradigm, right? Hmm. You can have a multi-ethnic paradigm without having a multi-ethnic experience, meaning the people yeah. who are around you. And look at what we're doing right now, right? Like, we really have no excuse, right? Like, even though we may not have people who live among us, we can still connect with people virtually, right? All over the world. And they can help speak into some of these things that we're, we're going through. And so I think you have to build relationships uh, cross-culturally, uh, I think you have to uh, be willing to invest in your leaders and send, sending them places to be exposed to different ways of, uh, of leading and, and doing ministry. Um, but, but I think it, it, at, the, at the bare minimum, what it means is it requires a, a personal investment and sometimes a financial investment um, yeah. to be able to really make some strides. Because we, you know, the same thing we say when, when we look at somebody's you know, we don't really want to say checkbook anymore. Like I can tell what's important to you by what you've invested in, not just time-wise, but yeah. financially. And this is one of those things too. Like if there's no investment, that usually means that there's, it's not really in a priority. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you're not, it's, you're giving, you're giving language to it, but you're not really trying to live into it. Mm. You know, what, uh, let me tag on to that as, as a white skin brother, let me tag on to that just to challenge our participants that not only is it loving to recognize that our, our brown and black skin brothers and sisters have been, you, you haven't been silent, right? And so that means the church hasn't been silent. The white church has, right? Like that, that's, that's a correction. I've been, trying to tell my white brothers and sisters, like the white church is who's been silent. The black church has not been silent on this. Like, let's, let's get honest about it. But then secondly, you have been though living in the midst and the depth and even under the, the weight of it for so long. You're many, I think, and I, I've encountered this many leaders that I walk with are just weary. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're exactly right. Like it's not, it isn't easy it's not, it's not like a simple phone call where I say, hey, Sintis, will you come into the room with us and talk? You know, you, you're having to navigate a ton of emotional, of, of, of mental, of just a lot of different elements of, of the ebb and flow and the roller coasters in your own heart and mind and soul to even come and engage in that conversation. And so you're right, man. It, if we can take some of those first steps to try to really educate ourselves, it can be very helpful. And there's lots of resources to do that podcasts and, and books. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I think that's, I'm so glad you said that. And what I wanted to tag on to that is that if you do ask a Brown or a black skin brother or sister to enter into the room with us and, and you're in the white skin room, which let me be, let me be really blunt if you're in a room that you as white people have typically dominated and led, right. And you're asking a Brown or or black skin brother or sister to now come into that space with you, not only to, to consciously submit to their teachings, but then to pay and value them for doing it. And not, that's not to be token. It's just to honor your time, right? Because you gave time to come and help us with that. It's almost, it's a, it truly is a consulting fee to get us to, to wake up. And so I, maybe, you, maybe you want to rebuke me in that, but that's something I want to throw out there to say, um, even if it's simple, like it's just a gift card to something, at least tangibly thank them 
for the time that they're giving to come in to help. Yeah, I think, you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, we, we violate what we don't value. And uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, we've invited people in to help us see things, to help us understand things, and they've given up their time and energy. And oftentimes, I'm, te- I'm speaking from, from personal experience, oftentimes, like, we enter into those spaces and we're minimized. Like, what we're saying is minimized or it's kind of explained away. And so then you have to yes. wrestle with, you know, just the experience of uh, being devalued in something yeah. that you've been invited into, right? Where you're trying to help. And so I think you're absolutely spot on. And and that, that care and that space that helps prepare the way and love people um, as they're trying to help serve uh, says to them that you value my experience and what I have to offer, even though it may be very different than your own. And sometimes it, it takes time to pre- prepare the room Uh, or the team for that person who comes in. I'll never forget one of my mentors said this years ago. He said, part of my responsibility is to help pave the way and to take some of the hits so that you don't have to, right? Mm -hmm. And so some some of it is not just the person that you have to prepare, right? Like we try to find the right person with the right temperament. That's not going to be the angry black dude, right? Like that's going to turn over tables and make people angry. Uh, and so we, you know, we, we think it's just the person that we have to prepare and get the right person, but sometimes we need to prepare the atmosphere, right? You may bring in the right person, but, but you haven't prepared your people, right? For what they really need to say. I was, um, I was meeting with a leader uh, that asked me to mentor them who's doing multi-ethnic work recently. And I said, you know what? Like when you really look at the work that you're doing, the reality is most time we're hired to do something that people really don't want us to do. <laughs> because if we really do it, it's going to be disruptive, right? Yes. It's, yeah, it will create a lot of discomfort. And so we would much rather get someone that's not going to make waves and create, you know, problems. Um, but the reality is if we really need to move, uh, we may have to be a little disruptive. And, and part of the job is to not ask that person, if it's a person of color, um, to do that, but to sometimes be the one willing to be disruptive yourself. Um, mm. And having been 35 years in the black church, the reality is there's a lot of learning, not just in white churches, but there's a lot of learning around this in predominantly uh, churches of color as well, because we're all negatively impacted by this, this thing yeah. called racism. And sometimes we've bought into some things, right? And, and we, we have been contributors to the problem as well. And so I think it's, it's important to note that it's not just white churches, although we do need to talk about that, particularly in the context of privilege right now, but it's something we all share. We all got a lot of work to do around this. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, the false narratives that we've believed around this subject are, are too many to count. I mean, a, a friend of mine that's in, in Motown gospel uh, music, she does training on this with churches and, and gets paid for it, gets valued for it, and she's really good at it. And that's her big shtick. In fact, it's one of the ways that she tries to disarm the white leaders in the room is to say to them, this isn't just about me come showing up here and saying all of you are racist. It, it really is about us all, every one of us admitting we've bought into and believed false narratives instead of the real narrative of the kingdom, the diverse, beautiful, maturing in oneness, loving kingdom of Jesus, right? That he is instituting and bringing to bear, coming, bringing to fruition among us. And, and, and so I think that's helpful. I mean, I, I love how you just, I love how you phrased it. And two episodes ago, Daniel Scarborough said something uh, on this on this series um, that I still have I can't stop thinking about and so I'm curious what you would say because we don't I, I don't see on my on my messages here that we have any questions yet so I'm going to keep asking questions <laughs> I'm curious what you'd say to this because I love what he said he said that it's easy in our effort to be multi-ethnic to not actually be multicultural and what I, the way I phrased it to someone explaining to them what I was processing is I said, I said, what that made me think is 
I even grew up in a situation where, where I think I told you before we started recording, I, I grew up in, in a mostly black church. So I, I wasn't, I never would say I'm an, a minority because I was still a majority, even though I lived in a neighborhood where I was uh, not among the majority of the people that were there, but, but I was still a white dude, right. Who had all the other privileges that very few other people around had. And, and even though I grew up in that heritage, what Daniel said made me kind of step back and go, man, I'm not even afraid to talk about privilege. And yet I bet I've led for monoculturalism instead of multiculturalism. I just thought it was brilliant that, that he highlighted the idea that you can try to be multi-ethnic and still be monocultural. What, what's your thoughts on that? Have you given, I'm sure you've given thought to that. So that's why I'm yeah, asking you. Yeah, last week we talked briefly about about that, just this whole idea of being multicolored, but not being multicultural. And David Anderson, you know, who's one of the like uh, forerunners, if you will, in the multi-ethnic church movement, he's been pastoring a multi-ethnic church for about 25, almost 30 years now in the D.C. area. And he uses kind of these four quadrants to talk about it. But I remember vividly the first time I was ever at a multi-ethnic church and it was a healthy church. It was a growing church. It was a multiplying church. And, you know, we had like had the most diversity really with our children's ministry and with our staff. And so we were, you know, starting to kind of turn a corner and we were in this retreat and, um, you know, we always had some level of conversation about this, you know, when we had staff retreats. And so, you know, we're sitting around the room and all the people of color kind of looking at each other saying, you're going to say it. I ain't going to say it. You're going to say it. I ain't going to say it. And so finally I would, I raised my hand. I was like, you know, this is, this is all great, but like, we're still a white church. Yeah. And there was silence. <laughs> I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And and one of the other um, leaders in my department, you know, raised her hand and she was weeping and she was like, how is that possible? Right. Mm. Like we have black pastors now. I was the second one. We have, you know, about 30 percent of our staff or people of color. Like, how could we still be a white church? And it's what you just described is the color had changed, but the culture hadn't changed. And so most of the way we did things, you know, how we did services, how we hired, where, where we hired, who we went looking for, who we thought was the good fit, all those things were still pretty much the dominant culture. So our culture hadn't changed, but our color had. And we become multi-ethnic or multicultural when not only does the color change, but the cultural values of what we do and how we do it begins to change. And the same is true, you know, on the opposite end. So I, I was listening to a leader who's at a predominantly black church who's, who's becoming multi-ethnic, uh, listen to a white member uh, kind of push back on something one day and, and the white member said, I can't do all three. I can't do all three. And the pastor was like, what are you talking about? She said, I can't do all three. She said, I can't, I can't clap, sing and sway at the same time. I, I, I can't do all three. And so the, the pastor was like, what are you talking about? Like we don't clap, swing and pray at the same. And so one of the leaders stood at the back of the church on Sunday and observed and came over to the pastor and said, she's right. We do do all three, right? So there's a sense in which the expectation, what values and the, the privilege, the things that we don't even think about, that we're not even aware that we're doing and how that impacts other people and their, their ability to feel safe and feel welcomed. And so not only do we have to address those kinds of issues, the food we eat, right? How, when we eat, like just simple things become a part of the process of people feeling like, um, they're welcomed and that their culture and their experience matters. It's crazy. It's crazy how, and I, and I know it's not simple. I know it's much more complex than this, but to me, it really is crazy that it, is it possible that it really comes back to, do we honor each other or not? Is it, is it possible that it really can like, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. Like, like, from, from a metaphorical standpoint, let's say I've got a camera lens that zooms in, right? And, and I, I think what I am afraid of, and I'm saying this as a white-skinned brother who is having to deal with this in his own life, even with the heritage that I have, which lets me know, I say that only because that lets me know if I'm dealing with it with the heritage that I have, then the people who have no heritage like that, for sure, are struggling to even go, wait, I just don't see it. 
right? And I think it's because we've got to change our lens. We've got, we, we're seeing the world with a Zoom lens in on our culture and our way of life and all the things that we've become familiar with. And so no wonder we're struggling to say, wait, 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 maybe we do have privilege, right? When we need to get a wide angle lens and pull back, because you know the difference, right? A Zoom lens, all of a sudden, everything around it goes blurry. And I just see what I'm seeing. But on the wide angle lens, I get the landscape. And I think, I think that's the, it's, it's really about pulling back and saying, can I honor everybody that's in the picture here? Can I, how can, I want to, I want to know what they eat. I, I want to know how they celebrate Christmas. I want to know, you know what I mean? Like, like pull back and, and want to know their stories and their ways and their rhythms and their fears and their, all of these facets. And so maybe as we're wrapping up here, just speak to that to encourage us. Cause I, I think for most of our participants, that's where they are. That, that's just my opinion. And I could be wrong, but that, that's yeah. where I would see it. Yeah. And let me, and let me throw another um, spin on this, uh, which is something that I'm, I'm writing about right now and trying to uh, sift through this. I think there, there's a question whenever I do this, like a two and a half day workshop uh, on race, racial reconciliation, we, we do an exercise where we ask the question, like, what do you like about being blank, 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 right? Dot, dot, dot. Like, what do you like about being black? What do you like about being Hispanic? What do you like about being uh, Asian? What do you like about being white? Right. What do you like about being native? And that question is a powerful one because, you know, people in the black community, they get together in a little circle and they start writing, you know, just feverishly all these things. And people in the Asian community, even though the Asian community is very diverse, they start, you know, writing and native as yep. well, Hispanic as well. And, and when we get to the group that is majority white, like there's usually silence. Mm. And, and then mm. someone will say something like, you know, they're, they're, they start talking about things that are really like the American dream. And then, uh, and then it starts bleeding into things like, yo, oh, I had a, a grandfather who was German or great, great grandmother who's Dutch, or, you know, it, it gets into that space, but it's usually at the end when we're about to finish. And, and what I've found about this is really powerful is like, we often talk about racism, what we call power one, which is kind of racism's power to oppress people of color. Um, but then power two is what we've been talking about today. The first part of it is to give unearned privilege to a group of people. But the second part is really, really important, which that exercise highlights. And it removes the cultural identifiers uh, of the majority group. And so mm -hmm. there was something that um, the white community had to do to become white, right? Like before... They were white, they were German, they were Dutch, they were Swedish, they were Irish, they were all these things. And there was something that had to be given up, right? There, were, there was a process um, to become white. And, and what, what has happened in our society is we've often forgotten what white people had to give up to become white, their, their language, their culture, their, their food, and, and, you know, a lot of other things. And, and I'm not comparing pain between what white people had to give up and, and slavery yeah, and yeah. like that, but, but I think part of the healing process and the power of us kind of coming back together and being on one accord is for the white community be, to become in touch with that pain, to come in, mm. to, uh, come in contact with that history and, and for part of that healing to take place that my people went through something for me to gain this privilege. And, and I don't talk about it a lot because it's, it's buried in a lot of pain and it's the oral history has died off, but, but there's something about that experience, which I call power two, um, of dealing with racism. And then there's power three, which kind of messes all of us up. <laughs> but, um, but I think there's something about that and there are books about it. Like when the, I think it's called when the Irish became white or when how the Irish became white. And there's kind of a series about this process. Mm -hmm. And I think to, to close out what you're, you're asking, I think there's a, there's a healing experience and a journey that if we're willing to go through it uh, as God, by, by his, his, his uh, power and through his spirit can help all of us. Right. Just like, I got to a certain point in my life where I had to like decide I was going to study African-American history, right? Because my, my parents were pushing me to do it and my school was not. 
<laughs> right? So yeah, I, had to, sure. I had to do the work myself to figure some yeah. of that stuff out. And I think there has to be the willingness in this next season for many in the white community to be willing to do that kind of work. And I think if that work is done well, it brings us closer together because we start to see more of our sameness rather than our differences. And it's not that our differences are bad, right? Because the tapestry of God's creation is beautiful, but there's some things that we'll be able to connect with more when we're in touch with the pain and the experience that we've all had to face of things being taken away or things being given away that really speak to who we are culturally, not just racially. Man, I love that. I love that is brilliant. Now you're going to have me thinking about that for the next, the next two, the next more than two weeks, man. But I love that because what you're really saying is everyone has to give up something if uniformity becomes a value. Right. Like, 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 and, and really uniformity is not a kingdom of Jesus value. It's not. Not <laughs> and, so, and so, no, that's, man, that's good. Wait, before we close, two questions that have come in that, that we'll, I want to highlight here. Um, one of them is, is there room for other expressions to live authentically in the other person or the other's world? Does that make sense? I, I think I, I think I understand what the question's asking. Um, you know, is it possible for me, for example, as a white skin brother to authentically live into your world as a brown skin brother? Is that, is that what, what's the real possibility of that? Absolutely. I think, I think it's possible. Um, it, it requires a lot of sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the cultural intelligence world, we talk about the four parts of the CQ will. There's drive, which is our motivation. There's knowledge, which is our understanding of, of differences, cultural differences. Um, there's strategy, which is really about how we navigate um, those differences. And then there's action, which comes to mm-hmm. this question, which is how much of me am I willing to give up? How much of, of me am I willing to sacrifice? And then how much of me am I willing to be transformed? And I think we always, in that action part of the CQ will, have to be honest about the balance of continuing to be who I am, but allowing myself to be transformed by who I'm around. And, and I believe that there's, you know, you talk to any missionary and they, they'll tell you, like, action is like the, at the core, right? But what we do in our, in our North American context is we put so much emphasis on knowledge that we miss drive, we miss strategy, and we miss action. And so we feel like if, if I know more, right, if I understand more, um, well, you know, if I know more, then that in- equals understanding, but knowledge doesn't always equal understanding, and it definitely doesn't teach you strategy. <laughs> uh, and so I think, yes, to, to the short answer to that person's question is yes. However, it requires a lot of work. It requires a, a, a lot of listening, a lot of learning, a, a lot of being a student, and a lot of vulnerability, and, and the willingness of a group of people to walk with you through that. Right. Like you, you can't do that by yourself. <laughs> right. Like you have to have like a, a community. That's yeah. what do it. And it can't just be one black friend. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> like that's just, right. That's right. You know, I got a black friend and that black friend, you know, no, you can't, it can't be that one Asian friend, that one native, like it, you have to like get immersed in a community in order yeah. for what they're asking to happen. But it is possible. I've seen it happen. And I love I love that that's that in that in that spectrum, right? The that strategy becomes a part of it, and I don't mean and I and I would say prayerful strategy, which is what I think you mean, because if you are in a mostly white community, but you want to immerse yourself and take an action step, you're going to have to be strategic about it, right? Like you're you're going to have to process what do I really need to do. Another question that came in was, I'm wondering what the fear is regarding culture change. Is there a fear of losing our culture by allowing another one in? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, unfortunately, um, we live in a world where we think things always have to be mutually exclusive. Hmm. And in order for me to support one thing, that means I have to be against something else. 
Yeah. And, and the reality is in the kingdom and in a mature understanding of social uh, constructs and sh- social theory, if you will, the reality is like things don't always have to be mutually exclusive. Like I can be for this and for that. <laughs> right. Um, the, the, the challenge, though, is if I'm for something at the expense of something else and and then I argue uh, against that thing I'm against, um, you know, it reveals a lack of self-awareness. Right. It's, yeah. I, this is the, this is the illustration that I'll use and you can apply this to you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, or whatever you want to apply it to, where, you know, I have a, a, a grandmother who just turned 100. And we were planning to do a 100-year uh, birthday party for her, and then COVID hit. And so imagine that we're about to do this great big party for uh, my grandmother, and um, somebody else has a birthday in the same month, and everybody's come from all over you know, the nation to grandma's party. But when we get to the party, we're about to sing happy birthday. My uncle from the back, who's 50, stands up and says, you know what, it's my birthday too, right? Like, why are we not celebrating my birthday? (laughs) It's like, oh, like, yeah, like we're not saying we don't support you. you. Like we're not saying it don't matter. We're not devaluing you, that's right. We're not devaluing you at all. We're just saying in this moment right now, what we're talking about is grandma. And can we focus on grandma? Because what you're doing is taking away from the ability to really focus our attention for a moment on something important. And so what I think happens a lot of times is, you know, we, we do that. It reveals a lack of self-awareness. It's not that other things don't matter. It's not that we shouldn't be talking about them. It's just that we need to know how to approach these things in such a way that the real impact is made. And unfortunately, um, we, we think things are mutually exclusive when they don't necessarily have to be. Yeah. And I, and I, I agree with you. And I think, I think even, I think it's more complex than just simply calling it fear, mm. right? Fear of losing something or fear of, of feeling like I'm not being valued to, or I think it's more complex than that because I think, I think in some ways it comes back to, well, I, I'll just be blunt for the sake of time. Cause I know we're running out of time. Um, I'll just say it bluntly. I, I think what I worry about is that we forget, we forget what Jesus is really up to. This isn't just individualistic salvation and individualistic uh, work that he has done. And this isn't just about what I want to now gain and then preserve. And, and I, I think, I think, I think when our theology is, is, and our framework of understanding is built upon um, an idea that, that is absolutely uh, about survival and self-preservation or about um, the fear and the ideology that uh, I should have this or I deserve this. Those are all very tainted and incorrect because anytime you dogmatically begin to think my framework of thinking is the only way and it's mutually exclusive. And now I'm going to argue against yours. You already have an incredibly tainted theology because your dogmatism has already tainted it. You know, you God's much more grand. He's grander than that dogmatism that I've now built my system on. And so I, I feel you on that. And it's much more complex. Um, yeah. Last one. Can I, can I, go say ahead, go ahead. I think the, the, um, the Samaritan good Samaritan story is a great one, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to kind of pontificate about why we shouldn't help and, you know, what's going to happen to us. Right. And, and our views and our positions, if somebody sees me closer to, to this, then how are they going to see, you know, all that kind of stuff. When the reality is let let's just get the brother help. Let's just get the person help, <laughs> right? Like yeah, let's stop arguing help. about who they are, what they did, how I'm going to look and how it's perceived. Can we just get them up and get them help? <laughs> Can we just do that? And I think that's part of the, the struggle is like we, we spend so, we major on the minor oftentimes and minor on the major. What really needs to happen is the person needs to get help. And, uh, and we don't need to be pontificating about all these other things. Although some of that stuff is important and I, I, I grant, you know, you can argue about it, but like, can we just get the person help? <laughs> um, they're not well, worried about all these other details. They, they just need somebody that's willing to help. them. <clears throat> yeah. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. It's so good. 
last one, and we'll wrap up here. Uh, I've this question says, I've often heard of late that I need to divest myself of whiteness. Uh, what does that even mean or imply? Is this a biblical notion? And this is a doozy to wrap up on. So there you go. I'm going to toss that one out to you. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, here's, here's how I would answer it in a very quick way. Um, we did a panel when uh, the Ahmed Arbery stuff hit and George Floyd hit. We did a couple panels at our church and one of our, one of our pastors who's white, white male uh, said this, e even in how we were positioned in the panel, um, because we originally had him in the middle because there were, you know, a white, uh, black woman on one side, I was on the other side. And he said, you know what, like at our church, we have to really work hard to make sure we decentralize whiteness. Mm -hmm. and, That's good. Um, and, and what he was getting at is that like, we have to be intentional about understanding the power of what's perceived in our society often as normative mm -hmm. and what's perceived as normative is often white. And so it's, it's often the question of how can I decentralize whiteness to where whiteness is not front and center all the time and, and that I am, uh, I am allowing uh, where I lead, who I lead, to hear different voices, to, to communicate different values, and, and that the white way is not the only way and is not always the right way, <laughs> right? Mm, and good. so... And it's not always the wrong way either, right? Yes, and correct, so correct, yeah. Being able to decentralize that yeah. is really, really important. And, and that requires some self-awareness, that requires a level of sensitivity, because it's not that in a multi-ethnic movement or in a, a uh, environment where there are people of color in the majority, it's not that people hate whiteness, it's that the challenge is, man, whiteness often uh, envelops me <laughs> and and causes me to not be able to be me and so there's a part of like this resistance of like being able to can I just breathe can I just be myself or do I have yeah. to always assimilate to something that is considered normative or something that's considered the right way and so it's not hate it's, it's just a sense of and can we can we share? <laughs> Can this be equitable? Can my voice be as equally important as yours? And so, in my experience as well, and so uh, the divesting is really not about devaluing. It's That's about right. it's about equity, right? It's, it's about this understanding that um, we have to decentralize, right? And, and there, this is where I'll end. Like I, I show these images sometimes when I'm doing workshops and um, some of them came out of uh, Oprah magazine we have these, this scene of a, a little white girl who's looking up at uh, baby dolls and all the baby dolls are black, right? Or you have this moment where uh, you're in a, a salon where people are getting their nails done and all the women who are getting their nails done are Asian and all the women who are uh, doing nails are white. And wow. it, those images kind of create this disruption because like when yes. you see it, it's like we're not used to seeing that because uh, whiteness has been centralized in our society, right? Yeah. I asked somebody the other day, like, what would you think if, if Superman was black? What would you think if Batman was Hispanic, <laughs> right? Like, if you don't see color, <laughs> right? Like, what if all these heroes and sheroes of, of, of your life didn't look like you? Like, would you still say that you didn't see color? And the reality is we've centralized whiteness so much it's become normative, and anything that disrupts that is seen as divisive when the reality is we're not trying to be divisive. We're just asking for equity <laughs> for, sure. for equal uh, place at the table. And sometimes that feels like we're being divisive. Yeah. I mean, it's why, it's why Chadwick mattered so much, right? Like it's, it's for real. And I'm not even brown skin, bro. And I, I couldn't watch the movie without crying. Cause it was, I, I got to imagine the hero, my friends I grew up with becoming the hero too. Right. And so you think about it and it's a bad metaphor because every metaphor breaks down. But in some ways, what you're saying is it, it's almost like as a white dude, if I just kept inviting you over to my house, but I never sat at your table. Right. I mean, and I know, again, every metaphor breaks down, but just just thinking simply, nobody's asking you to. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. I don't think the desired outcome for the most part is for you to give up your house or you to give up your table. It's for us to, to sit at each other's tables and, and to keep sharing that meal together and honoring and valuing each other's stories and to want to hear 
your want to know your insecurities and your strengths and your fears and 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 your victories and 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 then walk in those together and i don't think that's idealistic because this guy jesus i think cultivates for it every day yes he does yes he does that's good well, man, I, I am pumped. I've, I've learned a lot from you today. I hope our participants have. And, and I am uh, excited that we'll get to do this again on December 3rd. And so if you are participating with us today, just know that the next uh, episode in this series will be December 3rd, Thursday at 2 Eastern, 1 Central, and then take that through, <laughs> right? Noon Mountain and... 11 Pacific, and that's all totally an American-centric announcement, right? So if you're outside of America, I apologize that I'm not translating, and I sincerely apologize. So take it uh, to Eastern is that time that becomes the, the standard that you can move right or left on wherever you are. But we hope you'll join us that day. If you want to know more about um, or even register for, sign up for email updates, things like that, and want to learn more, and maybe even get the resource kit that has videos like the one that you saw today, you can go to uh, the website, multiplication.org slash kit, and you can sign up for the site, I mean, for the kit. Uh, you can you can register there. And there's lots of videos, lots of opportunity to learn, as you said, Synthes, it's lots of opportunity to create that, to do the hard work up front, even before you, so move from knowledge then into those other elements of the spectrum that you explained and, just, and especially into strategy and action, right? And so, uh, so which was a great, a huge insight. And thank you for sharing that today. And, and so we hope you'll join us uh, next time. And we really appreciate you taking your time today. And uh, I'll say bye myself, but I want to give you the privilege of saying bye. Uh, thanks for joining us today, bro. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us.